0: 102.5 FM, KXSF LP, San Francisco, and KXSF.FM. You're tuned into Spark, informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Today I'm talking with Jillian Hooker. She leads the National Society of Genetic Counselors, holding a doctorate degree in molecular, cellular, and developmental biology from Yale University. She's also currently the Vice President of Clinical Development for Concert Genetics, focusing on the genetic testing market. Today, we are talking about the rise of genetic testing. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Jillian. It's a pleasure to be here. There appears to be an explosion in interest with genetic testing. Why is this?
1: Technology has changed so much in the last decade, um, and we've just understood more and more about the human genome, which I think naturally has led people to ask questions about their own genomes and their own tests, both from a clinical perspective um, as it pertains to their health care and also, I think, because they're interested and want to learn
0: Do you have metrics as to how fast it's growing that you can share with us?
1: Yeah, actually, this is something we've been tracking. I work for a company called Concert Genetics, and we've been tracking the market of tests that are available on the clinical side to be ordered for about 10 years now. And we've seen growth from about 10,000 tests in 2012 to 150,000 tests right now on the market that are available for clinicians to order for patients for all all different types of treatments.
0: Is it just on the clinical side, or is it also on the consumer side?
1: It's grown very much on both sides of the market. I think um, there are more and more options out there um, for consumers also to go online, find different companies who will send you a kit in the mail um, with saliva samples and post genetic test results and genetic findings um, on their website sometime later for people to explore.
0: So the cost of these DNA testing kits must be coming down and accessible for consumers.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think we've made just tremendous investments in genetics research um, over the last several decades, and the technology has caught up to a point where you can generate a lot more DNA sequence for uh, far fewer dollars. Um, And so that's really uh, enabled genetic testing to happen at a price point where people can start to make their own personal decisions about purchasing tests. It's also helping things on the healthcare side uh, to help folks make better decisions about healthcare.
0: Okay, so there's an mm-hmm. increase of these DNA testing by the clinicians, mm-hmm. and then there's yeah. an increase in the DNA testing by consumers. So, yeah. what's the difference? Yeah. yeah, so on the consumer side, I think what's happening is generally the tests are
1: targeted at a broad audience. So they're not targeted to any individual's specific family history um, or personal history generally, although sometimes on the consumer side, doctors do get involved in helping make sure the right test gets ordered. But generally, um, it's about ancestry. It's about learning things um, from your DNA that you're just curious about. Um, And I think most people, what they're paying for is that experience of learning and satisfying their curiosity. On the clinical side, I think it's a lot about medical decision-making. What's the right treatment for this patient? What's the right screening for cancer? What's the right monitoring for cardiac disease? And how can we use these tests to help us understand who needs those treatments or those screening protocols or opportunities to reduce risk for disease? Um, Those can be very personal and very individualized, and genetic tests can often help identify the people who will benefit most from certain certain paths of care.
0: So 23andme is popular but not used in healthcare.
1: Yeah. No, 23andme um is it was approved by the FDA um, and the reports were approved in the FDA, but in order to be used for healthcare decisions, the FDA recommended that people actually redo the tests to confirm them in the clinic to make sure that the information in those tests is right before making a major medical decision. So I think what the guidance would suggest is that if someone has a result from 23andMe that indicates they're at high risk for cancer or at risk of having a child with a particular condition, that they take that to their doctor, to a genetic counselor, somebody who's familiar with the test, to really understand what it means um, and understand whether you need confirmatory testing um, before going ahead and making a decision on that.
0: That's a really good point because, you know, you have to actually understand what exactly you're reading and how you're reading it. Yeah,
1: yeah, which actually would be my number one piece of advice for anyone getting a genetic test is to take a moment to understand what it means and just as importantly, what it doesn't mean. Um, I think that there's a perception oftentimes in the media or in movies that genetic tests are absolute, that they're 100% predictive, a perfect uh, crystal ball into the future, and rarely is that actually the case. More often, what you're talking about is probabilities, probabilities associated with certain variants, and those probabilities need to be interpreted also in the context of what did the test not look at, what else is out there, what else might there be, and those those are really the limitations of the testing, and it's
0: just important to under- understand those. So to be clear, there tests intended for healthcare, and tests are not intended for healthcare.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a really important distinction um, for any test that you're getting into. Is Was it intended just to educate you, to help you understand, or is it really intended um, to be used for clinical decision-making by your doctors
0: um, or
1: other care providers?
0: I think what's interesting is that there are people who are even getting their dogs tested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that just speaks to
1: the curiosity we have.
0: Um, about our
1: DNA and about our history and about where we come from. And I think for dogs, there has been a lot of interest. I think most dog owners identify with that question. You know, what what kind of dog is that? What sort of breed is that? What were their parents? And the DNA test, in many cases, will shed light on that, it will tell you from many, many different studies of many different dog breeds what the relative percentages are for a given dog.
0: sounds like most of these tests are becoming say, numerous and easier to administer. For both the consumer and clinical mm-hmm. clinicians. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the numerous um,
1: part is an interesting, interesting aspect of the market. They're becoming more numerous in two ways. Um, one, we're finding new genes that are associated with particular diseases um, and, and increasingly able to test for diseases we couldn't test for or look at the combinatorial effects of different genes for diseases we haven't tested for in in the past. And so there are new, unique tests coming on the market. But then the other thing that's happening, in 2013, there was a Supreme Court case on whether you could patent DNA, whether somebody could own a particular sequence of DNA as their own product. And the Supreme Court came back and said, no, you can't do that. Um, These are naturally occurring sequences, which really created a market because that meant that lots of different labs could offer competitive tests to one another. So um, it wasn't just one lab that had the rights to test for one gene, but many labs could all test for that gene. And so um, options became available for clinicians, also for consumers, um, for similar tests where you could sort of shop and compare which are these tests based on price, based on quality, um, which are the right tests for any given situation
0: we're going to need a consumer digest for all the tests out there. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, increasingly that's become important is having the right tools to be able to compare side by side one test to another um, and having the metrics available to say like, yeah, this is the right test for a particular condition um, or no, you know, that test is really not going to give me the information I need.
0: It would be difficult to tell. Right. Or do that comparison if you don't have knowledge about how the testing yeah. works. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it's an incredibly complex space. And and that's something I think I've personally spent a lot of time working on over the last five to six years is building um, a compendium of tests on the market, uh, organized just like a grocery store, putting similar tests together so that you could really pull them off the proverbial technological shelf and compare them side by side um, across quality metrics and costs and things like that. Because with 150,000 tests, you need some level of structure and organization around it to be able to be a shopper.
0: And so is there a difference in accuracy?
1: Um, I think so. There's a lot of ways to talk about accuracy of the test. Um, And often it depends on towards what end. So you might get the letter right. So, you know, the, the, Human genome is made up of an alphabet, a DNA alphabet of four letters, A, C, G, and T. And it could be that a test correctly calls at a given point, yes, there is an A at this point, at point number 3,127, there is an A, and they get the call right, but then understanding what that means, right? What is that associated with? That's also important. Are they correctly associating it with a particular disease or risk for disease, with a particular guidance? In the case of a consumer test with a particular ancestry, like, is that right as well? Is their interpretation of it right? Um, And that's where our knowledge is just continuing continuing to evolve and change over time. Um, And even things that we thought five years ago we may interpret slightly different now. And that's where I think um, it's important to think about these DNA tests almost as a living book, right? Uh, Something that is continually changing in its interpretation over time. Um, and it's important to think about it in that way. It's not really like a one-time thing. Um, our knowledge evolves over time, and so it's important to stay engaged.
0: So your knowledge could change over time, mm-hmm. and therefore the tests that you previously took have given you as much information as yeah. now in this round could give you, and you just have to stay on top of you know what's going to give you the most information and the best information.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So it could be previously there was a particular part of the gene or the genome that that test didn't look at and newer versions of the test now do look at that. Um, it could be that the association between a particular gene or a particular variant, a particular letter in the DNA wasn't well understood five years ago. And since then researchers have come out with more studies that say like, yes, that particular variant is strongly associated with a risk for breast cancer or a risk for cardiac disease. Um, and so the interpretation of that variant has changed over time.
0: So it sounds like accuracy then varies across the market for both consumer and clinical tests.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I think many of, of the folks in the market are using the same machines and they meet the same standards. And there are um, regulatory standards out there for labs and how they run their tests on the clinical side. Um, on the consumer side, the FDA does approve tests like 23andMe. Um, which can give some assurance um, that there are standards out there that are being met. Um, I think from the standpoint of comparing accuracy, as I said, it's complex because it's both a matter of what they're testing for, what's included in the test, and do they get it right? And do they get it right analytically? Does the machine get it right? And I think usually the machines do a pretty good job, but then does the interpretation get it right as well?
0: Interesting. Interesting. So I had a friend whose pregnant wife went through genetic testing for their baby. Yeah. The test was showing genetic mutation, but the baby mm-hmm. came out healthy. So had she made the decision not to keep the baby, it would have been the wrong decision. So it's an example yeah. of limitation of testing, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that, I think that ties into what I was saying earlier. That many genetic tests are not a hundred percent; they're about a probability that something might happen, but it doesn't absolutely mean it will happen. And then there's a lot of complexity to these issues of accuracy and sensitivity and specificity and all of that. And that's where I think going to somebody who knows the test well, who understands the technology, a genetic counselor, can be really helpful and really illuminating for a lot of people to better understand what the tests mean, and just as importantly, what they don't mean.
0: So you have to have a good interpreter. Yeah. And and hopefully a good test.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's right. And I think a good interpreter um, likely has experience with the testing and can also help direct someone to the right test.
0: But how do you know or decide when it's clearly predictive or not? Yeah, I think it's just one of those devils-in-the-details kinds of questions.
1: It's understanding the report understanding the methodology, understanding the data that it's based on, um, or, as we were just saying, finding someone who does, um, who can really distill it and break it down for you. And I think, gratifyingly, there have been more and more genetic counselors um, entering the field. Our field has grown tremendously rapidly over the last 10 years or so, from about 2,500 counselors to 5,000 counselors now, with 500 new genetic counselors entering the field every year, Um, So there are more and more people available, uh, both in person, sort of locally to go to a local hospital and talk to somebody who knows, and also through telemedicine, which, you know, during a current pandemic is really important um, to a lot of people that those services are available. So um, options for people to identify genetic counselors online that they can talk to about their questions, um, either before they have a test or after they have a test.
0: So the question becomes: How do you apply it to your health if if it may not predict your future? Yeah,
1: yeah, and so that's where it gets into like how predictive is it? You know, are we talking about a difference of one or two percent risk? Um, And that's something that can be hard to sort of feel and wrap your head around. What's the difference between having a ten percent chance of developing a disease and an eleven percent chance? And what would you do differently? And I think in most cases, people would say you probably wouldn't do a lot differently at at that difference between 10% and 11%. But then when you say an 80% chance of developing a disease, right, versus 10%, that all of a sudden is a lot more. Um, And for many kinds of diseases, breast cancer is probably one that um, has gotten the most attention. There are genes that that confer a very high risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer um, and recommendations, national guidelines that, uh, for women who are carriers of mutations in those genes, that they make choices to have increased screening for cancer. And in some cases, um, discuss the option of mastectomy, having their breast removed, or oophorectomy, having their ovaries removed to reduce their risk of cancer.
0: Now that you pointed out, it's always improbabilities. So the question then becomes, how close are these probabilities? To actual outcomes. And that's the part that I always find confusing, yeah. right? It's a 50-50. I mean, yeah. 50-50 is a yeah. still a big toss-up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think there are a lot of people who have studied human beings and how we interpret risks and probabilities and that most of us do exactly what you just said right there as we translate. Either it's likely to happen, it's not likely to happen, or it's a toss-up. It's 50-50. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's just a, a common heuristic that our brains follow. In the medical world, I think the way we get the numbers is we follow large populations of people, large numbers of people who have something in common, say a genetic variant um, or mutations in the same gene. And we have looked over time, and there's lots of registry data across the country watching these folks over time and seeing what happens, how many of them go on to develop cancer, how many don't, and use those numbers to develop the probabilities that are communicated back to patients now. Um, but then the other thing that um, folks do in the, the clinical genetics research, as they say, of those people, for the ones who had a particular intervention, they took a drug or they had surgery or they screened more closely, what were the outcomes? Just Like you said, the outcomes is the, is the bottom line question. What happened to them? And is there evidence that these treatments, these interventions um, performed uh, for people who are at high risk of disease helped? And when there is evidence, that's when it makes it to the standpoint of guidelines to say, yep, this feels like the right way to handle people given X, Y, or Z.
0: Interesting. But there could be false negatives or detections. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think um, that that too uh, relates to how we study the, the tests, how we understand the limitations of the tests. Um, they're not perfect, and they do miss people. Um, I think when you have a false negative, I think it's important to consider the entire clinical context. So if somebody has a really strong family history, if they've had cancer in in the cancer space or they have a strong family history of cardiac disease, um, that may still be relevant, even if a test result doesn't show something. Um, You still need to consider their family history and their medical history when making decisions um, because it really is about all of the data that someone comes in um, and how that's used to individualize their care
0: going forward. So would you validate your test results by taking a different test?
1: I think rarely. Um, Once in a while, there are inconsistencies in a test or, um, as we were talking about a moment ago, there are new tests that come out that are either more comprehensive or offer Um, a new analysis. I think that's much more common that people sort of track that over time and return to the question again and again. If the first test was not informative for them, go back to find over time that that new tests may be informative, um, I think is is a much more common approach.
0: Then to take two different tests, testing for the same thing. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, be back with the rise of genetic testing. Keep real radio alive, people. Live, local, real radio. That's why you're here listening to KXSF, right? On 102.5 FM San Francisco. We give you more of what you want. Music and programming curated by actual human beings who live locally in your neighbourhoods. Plus live music and interviews with local artists and bands. But to stay on the air, KXSF really needs your help. Donate now to KXSF by going online to www.kxsf.fm and clicking on Donate. It's 100% tax deductible. Keep real radio alive in San Francisco and donate now, everyone. Thank you so much. This is KXSF 102.5 FM, streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm and you're tuned in to Spark with Kelly Marlowe. Informing minds inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. I was talking with Jillian Hooker before the break on false negatives and detections in genetic testing. Why do people really want to know if it could change their lives overnight? Maybe ignorance is bliss.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think increasingly what we're moving towards is a world where care is individualized to each of us, recognizing that uh, one-size-fits-all medicine may not be the best approach in many settings, and that um, some people need certain treatments, certain interventions that other people maybe don't. Um, one example would be screening for cancer, right? Some people need um, colonoscopies earlier because they have a very strong family history. They have a family history of early onset colon cancer, so it makes sense to start colonoscopy earlier. Other people may be lower risk um, and maybe don't need to start colonoscopy as early, um, or maybe a different intervention, and a new screening test for colon cancer um, might be more appropriate for them. And so I think it's really about using all of the information, genetic information, clinical information, um, family history from a person to develop the best path for them, so they get the care they need, and they can avoid the care they don't need. When you think about the range of health-related genetic tests, there are tests that are very much in this vein of directing care. There are actions that could be taken based on these genetic tests. There are also tests out there um, which have traditionally been thought of as not actionable, or there's nothing you could do. They maybe diagnose risk for disease. Um, but there are no interventions that are known to take to be taken to be effective um, for these. And this is common when we start to talk about Alzheimer's disease or other diseases that involve neurodegeneration or um, sort of impairment. Um, and in those cases, that's changing too now. I think for a long time people said, oh, there's nothing you can do. I don't want to have that test. There's nothing I would do with it but worry. Um, but increasingly, there are clinical trials available, and people are starting to have the tests so that they can contribute to research or get involved in clinical trials. And um, I think it's just it's a changing landscape and, and a lot of it stemming from the changes in innovation coming down to change the way we approach healthcare and, and way we approach genetic tests specifically.
0: That makes sense. So it sounds like if you have genetic predisposition in your family, mm-hmm. or let's mm-hmm. say colon cancer runs high, where there's been yeah. multiple members in the family that has it, it would make sense for you to go ahead and do the genetic testing early?
1: I think so. I think so. I would encourage somebody to talk to their doctor about it or find a genetic counselor to talk about their risks, about their family history, to identify the right test, um, in order to, to get on the right path for care. Um, I think that can be incredibly uh, effective and, and even life-saving for some folks.
0: And then the second situation is: the sicker you are, the less you know you have to lose, right? Since the information <laughs> yeah. could help identify yeah. possible treatments and contribute yeah. to the research of it.
1: Yeah, we haven't talked as much about that. I think increasingly genetic tests are being used to help diagnose to help identify what specific subtype of a disease does someone have? Cancer, this is particularly common, using genetic tests of the tumor to understand what were the DNA changes that led this tissue to become a tumor in the first place, and what are its weaknesses? How can we target it with diseases? And I think genetic tests, that's a a very rapidly growing area of the market um, in the oncology space. And then I think there are also genetic tests that people are using to understand how they respond globally to medicine. Um, so do they metabolize a particular medicine quickly or do they metabolize it poorly or do they have? are they prone to adverse side effects of a particular medicine? Um, so using genetic tests to make, make decisions in that context as well, I think there is um, a growing role uh, for tests in that spectrum to, to just better treat disease.
0: But as I understand it, you could have some kind of genetic abnormality, for instance, Mm -hmm. but doctors won't be able to tell you if any impact it may have. Yeah, I think
1: um, oftentimes when you've already developed a disease and you have a genetic mutation, something that you were born with that gave rise to that disease, sometimes it can provide information for a treatment path for you. Um, It can certainly provide information for your family members. About their risk of developing that same disease, um, and it can also um, provide information sometimes about the type of disease you have.
0: Yes, but it's a probability outcome, right? Yeah. Where yeah. you don't know well, for sure. If you've
1: already developed the disease, I think in many cases, then it's not a probability. You've developed the disease, so okay. you're you're at a hundred percent there. Um, but, but yes, you're totally right. It's a probability when it comes to your family members and, and particular treatment decisions. Yeah.
0: But what if you ha- it's showing that you have uh, some kind of genetic mutation, but it, the disease itself hasn't shown up yet?
1: Yeah, that's where I think it it really depends on what's the mutation. What do we know about it? How many people have we seen and who have that, and what happened to them, and what can we learn about their path? to make a prediction for you about the likelihood that you might develop that disease. Is it absolute? Does it seem to be a very, very high risk that you will develop that disease or is it small numbers? Is it the 10% versus 11% that we were talking about earlier?
0: So the question is really whether your genetic mutation and the disease are linked together. And then that is really the impact that you then need to understand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think you've got it exactly right. It's about the genetic mutation. It's tied to a particular disease. And then what we know about how you can modify that risk. Is there anything you can do to change that risk? Are there um, drugs or surgeries or treatments um, that can lower that risk or or not? And then once you develop disease, I think it's more about using the genetics to say, what do we know about how your genetics predict the treatment? Um, and whether it'll be effective for you or not.
0: Given the number of people who are being tested now and the amount of data that's been collected, where is this being stored? Yeah,
1: yeah. I think this is another really important area to talk about and for folks to think about as they engage with genetic tests, which is what are the privacy policies for any particular laboratory that's performing the test, for anybody who's holding the, the, the data, the results of the test, um, what are the rights that they have to that? And what are your rights? And it varies so much across the market. I think there are many different policies from many different groups, um, from people who um, will, in their privacy policies, they, they say they will not sell your data, they will not share your data, it's your own, some people don't even store it um, for any period of time to other groups that are actively sharing or selling aggregated data to other entities. Um, so I think it's really important to understand when you, when you um, decide to have a test, be it on the consumer side or the clinical side, what the privacy policies are. Um, there have been studies of these privacy policies, and some are really, really extensive and long, and some are pretty short um, and bare bones. And so it's important to read through those. Um, again, if you, if you need help, find somebody who can help read through those to know what you're signing on to
0: um, and what may happen uh, with this data over time. So it sounds like there are no industry standards at this time. Yeah,
1: yeah there are folks working on it. Um, I know there are some, uh, some nonprofit groups who are working in, in industry groups working to develop some standards for privacy, um, but I don't know that they're being universally adopted right now.
0: Well, since I have such a fertile imagination, it reminds <laughs> me of the New World, where they use yeah. the genetic information to separate people into different groups and society and i couldn't help think that over time all this data right and everything they know about everyone genetically could be categorized in some way
1: yeah i think i think in many ways in the sense genetic data is not special i think the same risks do apply to all data um all of your data and how it's shared and i I, so I, i don't think it's um more or less secure, but and I, and I think that this discussion about your genetic data certainly does tie into the larger discussions about privacy um, and consent and informed consent with data and what's going to be used with it. I think that that um, is very true. And with genetic data, I think the one thing that is unique is that it doesn't change throughout your lifetime, um, and it is in many cases identifiable, right? Because we are yeah. unique in our genes, and so. Um, there has been perhaps in some ways more conversation about privacy around it, but ultimately um, the same policies and issues we see around your banking information and your online um, you know, uh, search engine use, all of that um, would also apply to genetic data.
0: But insurance could use this data as a pre-existing condition yeah. that you have and yeah. use it against you.
1: Yeah, so right now in the United States, there is uh, federal protection um, that prevents the use of genetic information um, in making health insurance premium uh, decisions and an employment decision. So that's illegal on a federal level, and that's called the Genetic Information Non Discrimination Act um, that prevents that. Um, where it's a little bit murkier from a policy perspective is in life, inter- life insurance and long term care insurance. That's something where on a state-by-state basis, um, it may or may not be um, legal for life insurers or long-term care insurers to use genetic information. And I think it's it's a complex issue because they are in the business of making actuarial decisions about the likelihood that things will happen. And they have been for a long time using family history, personal medical history information to make decisions for their businesses. And so, on the one hand, it may seem artificial to pull genetics out of that. Um, On the other hand, given the nascency of the field and the evolving information, I think there are legitimate concerns about inappropriate use of genetic information to make those decisions. If somebody doesn't understand the data and doesn't understand what it means and isn't applying probabilities right, it could lead them to make a very wrong decision.
0: It's easy, if they can, to say, well, it sounds like you have a family history of colon cancer or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and, and so we're not going to offer you a policy.
1: Yeah, and that's something, to my understanding, I, mean, I don't know their specific algorithms, but I, my understanding is that life insurers and long-term care insurers have been asking those of questions for a long time. Um, now, the different question is, could, is, it, is, it, is it different if they use a genetic mutation? Oh, you had testing and now you have this in a family history. Is that different or is it the same? Um, I think the answer is it depends. If you have a strong family history of colon cancer and you know that that's caused by a mutation that's being passed down in your family and you take a test and you find out you didn't inherit that mutation then actually maybe you don't have the same level of risk for colon cancer that your other family members do who have that mutation. Um, and so it might be in your best interest for life insurers uh, to take that into account when they review your file, right? That genetic test right. result actually would help their understanding of your risk in a way that they wouldn't if they asked about family history alone.
0: It's complicated.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it is. Which goes back to what, what I think is the biggest concern there, which is that they don't understand it or they don't use it appropriately or they don't ask the right questions. I think that that um, is a concern in that space. And I think it would be really helpful to have policy or guidelines about how genetics can or can't be used in that space just to give people a little bit more certainty about what might happen.
0: So it sounds like there will be job growth in the sector yeah, with exploding yeah. interests.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. As more and more people engage with this, more and more questions come forth, we find more ways to integrate it into our healthcare system, to integrate all of these very data streams into our healthcare system, I think we're going to continue to need people who understand the technical details of all of this, but can communicate it back to people in a way that they can understand it
0: and use it and make meaning out of it um, and actually apply it in their lives. So it sounds like we'll have more companies providing genetic testing. We'll need more counselors who actually understand the technology for these yeah. tests, these newer tests, and hopefully they can interpret. They're really good interpreters and they can yeah. explain the probabilities better than most people can. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And then I think also this recognition that these
0: um, the
1: interpretations of tests change throughout your lifetime. Your need for information is going to change throughout your lifetime. And so that's the other model, I think, um, we'll see changing that over the last 10 to 20 years, I think most people who've had a genetic test probably have only had one or two at most genetic tests in their lifetime. Everybody else would probably be an outlier. So sort of looked at it as a single time event. And I think what, what's likely to change is that whether we get our whole sequence at one point early in our life and we just keep going back to ask more questions of it, or we have different new genetic tests at different stages of life, um, I think it will become much more of a a consistent part of our care rather than a one-time event, but something you continue to go back to and ask questions about how it factors into different decisions you're making, be it um, about your family, about having children, about your management of your risks um, for disease, about planning um, at the end of your life, all of these things. I think there's a role for genetics in there.
0: And to make sure that the company has very tight privacy standards and data protection.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And that those privacy standards and data protection policies are consistent with your own values. So I do think this is something where different people come out in different places on it. Um, I think there are some people for whom... um, that uh, privacy and keeping the data protected, not allowing it to sort of go other places is a a very high priority um, and a a significant concern. I think there are other folks who want their data to be shared. I think this is particularly true when you talk about rare disease communities who are advocating for research on their conditions. Many of these rare diseases are genetic. Um, And so data sharing is less of a concern um, I think it's more about control over what's, what's going to happen, what sorts of questions will be asked, and will I have a say in that. Um, so it really varies, I think, across communities, across individuals, um, what their preferences are. Um, at a high level, what we need is just transparency and clarity about how it will be used. I think everybody pretty much agrees on that.
0: Completely agree with you on that. I mean, I you know, if you're going to sell my information, let me know first.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me what the rules are around us, and what's going to, what could happen, um, and and what my choices are. What are my um, options if I, if I'm not on board with that?
0: Thank you for joining me on Spark today.
1: Oh gosh, thank you so much for having me. You can tell I could talk about this all day. <laughs>